You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We praise you, Father. We praise you, Son. We praise you, Spirit, triune God of grace. You've poured out generously and undeservedly your love and grace into our lives. And we pray now that you would give us the gift that you promised, the gift of the Spirit, that we would be those, as we read it and hear your word, that we would not just hear and walk away unchanged, but that we would respond to the word of God with obedience and with love that your Spirit produces. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, our mediator, and our advocate. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church family. Those of you here, those of you down in the fellowship hall, those of you online, we're grateful that you're here. If you've been with us uh, this fall, you'll know that we are studying together the, the books of First and Second Samuel. And what we've been saying week by week is that this is more than just an ancient story about an ancient people, but this is our story. This is a story of the people of God. And as we explore what happens in this ancient story, we're not just learning about ourselves, but we're learning about the God who never stops giving up on us, never stops loving us. So today we're going to hear from uh, Beth Sprinkle as she reads from chapter 16. So let's hear God's word. A reading from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 14. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him, and they asked, Do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. And so he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And so he sent for him and had had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. 
So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was about 12 years old or so, my, um, I noticed I started getting headaches, and we pretty quickly figured out that it must be my vision. I was having a harder and harder time seeing the blackboard at school, so my parents took me to the eye doctor, and sure enough, I had really bad vision, and I'll never forget the moment they put the glasses on my face for the first time, and some of you who have bad vision with me know what I'm talking about. They put the glasses on my face, and it was suddenly like the whole world blasted forth in beautiful clarity. And I was suddenly seeing all of these things that I could not previously see. I was seeing the grains of carpet lint and the blades of grass and the pimples on my sister's face. You know, I was just see, I was seeing all of these things that I was previously blind to. It was like my, my world was changed. Last week, if you were here, you'll remember that our theme was around one of the key words in the text, and that was the word hearing, Shema. We learned last week that it's possible to hear and yet not hear. That's the source of self-deception, that you can hear and not yet hear. Well, if last week the theme was hearing, the theme this week is that of seeing. That's the key word in this text, the Hebrew word ra'ah, which occurs seven times in the text. And so the theme this week is, it is possible to see and yet not see. It's possible to see with your human eyes and yet not see the way that our God sees the world. We've been looking at the beginning of the monarchy. I mean, guys, we're only like a quarter of the way through and it's already a big old disaster. And you're probably asking yourself, you know, why do we always do this? Why do we always choose the wrong kings? Why do we always end up hurting ourselves and hurting other people? Why do we always mess everything up? And one of the answers is, friends, is because we do not see as God sees. We do not value what God values. We do not love what God loves. And the invitation of this text is that we would have new spectacles, new eyes, that we would begin to see the world as God sees it, that we might find life. So let's look together at, at a few things I think this text highlights about the way that we humans see the world and how different it is from the way that our God sees the world. Okay, are y'all with me? Y'all with me today? Okay. The first thing that we're going to look at is the fact that we, as human beings, often see endings, and yet God sees beginnings. We see endings, God sees beginnings. Well, the monarchy's story has been pretty dismal so far. Um, Saul seemed to have such a promising start, and instead of being the king that we all hoped that he would be, he has become like the king of the nations. And the whole identity of Israel now seems to be in jeopardy, and it is a very sad, very tragic moment for the history of Israel. And no one feels this more deeply than our brother Samuel. 
because Samuel has been a faithful prophet in Israel for his entire life, ever since he was a little boy committed to the temple by his mother, Hannah. And he's been giving his whole life, his whole soul, his whole heart, everything that he is to seeking the fidelity of the people of Israel to Yahweh, their God. This is what he's lived for. And he was heartbroken when Israel wanted a king, but at least with Saul, he hoped that this guy would turn out to be a different kind of king, not one who lived for himself, but who lived for God and God's people. But the, the, the worst has transpired. His nightmare has been fulfilled. The thing that he most dreaded has transpired and everything has crumbled apart. And in the end of chapter 15, we read this. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah. Until the day that Samuel died, he did not go see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Y'all, it doesn't get much worse than that. You know, you don't want to make God sad. <laughs> but God is grieved here, right? And in fact, if you were just reading this for the first time, you might think, oh, well, this is the end of the story. The experiment of the monarchy, over. The, the, the special calling of God's people, Israel, done. God's own covenantal fidelity to the, his own people, finished. The end of the story, period, the end. But then you turn the page. In chapter 16, verse one, it says this. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem for I have seen, there's the first appearance of that word, I have seen a king amongst the sons of Jesse. See, God sees something that Samuel can't see. He sees a new king and he doesn't just see a new king, friends. He sees a new beginning. He sees a new possibility. He sees a new opportunity. He sees a new chapter opening where Samuel had only seen the end. And this is one of the great stories that we see throughout the scriptures. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin against God, and it seems like the only certain outcome is banishment and death, God instead clothes them with his own hands and gives them a promise that the snake would one day be crushed, and he sends them out from the garden with a new beginning. When God's people are trapped as slaves in Israel, and it appears that their story has come to an end, God miraculously splits the Red Sea and baptizes them with a new beginning, bringing them into new life. When God's people are trapped and exiled in Babylon, and it certainly seems that the story of Israel has come to a conclusion, God raises up prophets who promises that a path would be made in and through the desert wilderness. And when the women go to the tomb to anoint the dead body of the man that they thought would be the Messiah and whose story has now ended in crucifixion, not only do they find an open tomb, but a resurrected king. And so in every single situation, as far as we can see, all hope is lost. And at the exact same time, God sees help is already on the way. We see endings, God sees beginnings. After God always puts a, a, a comma at the end of every tragedy, he puts a conjunction after every nightmare. He always brings a beginning just when we think that the ending has come. And, that, and that's the really in the first invitation here, for you to see this in your own life. What ending are you grieving in your own life right now? Where do you see an ending? Is it the end of a dream or the end of a marriage or the end of a relationship or the end of a, of a hope you had for one of your children or the ending of a career or the ending of your health? You know, 
Guys, there is a time for grieving. Grieving is holy. Grieving is good. Grieving is beautiful. But at some point, God may be saying to you, like he says to Samuel, get up. It's time to wipe the tears off your face and venture out in faith to see what new beginning I want to bring. When one of my best friends, uh, Peter, and his wife had their first child and discovered in the delivery room that she had Down syndrome, it felt like a serious ending for them. It felt like an end to all of the unspoken assumptions they had about the kind of child that they would have. It felt like an end to all of their expectations about who she would be, what sports she would play, what school she would go to, what career she would have, what their entire future and family would be like until they died. All of that suddenly felt like a big old end. But for the last 16 years, I'm not saying it hasn't been hard. I'm just saying that it has been one beginning after one beginning after one beginning as she has brought so many new things into their lives, so many beautiful things, so many holy things that would not have been ever a part of their life had that ending not been there. So where is there an ending in your life right now? What feels hopeless? What feels like it's come to a full period stop? God may be saying to you, I know he's saying to you, behold, I'm doing a new thing. It now springs forth. Do you not see it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. We see endings. God sees beginnings. Second, we see the outside. God sees the inside. So God tells Samuel that he has seen a king among the sons of Jesse. And so Samuel goes on up to Jesse's place. And Jesse has a bunch of sons. And the sons are paraded in front of Samuel. And Samuel knows that one of them, one of these kids, is God's new king. Now, the first guy he sees is this young man named Eliab. And Eliab is impressive. You know, he'd be like chosen for The Bachelor. He's tall, he's handsome, he's good looking, he's very strong, all of which were very important requirements for kings of the time. And Eliab thinks, hmm, this is the one. And God says, nope. Keep on moving, buddy. And then God says this, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Samuel, even you, the great prophet that you are, who's lived in the temple your entire life, even you cannot see as I see. You are missing what is real. You're being duped. When I was in high school, I had a short stint as a magician. Um, <laughs> a very amateur, very bad music, uh, magician. I um, actually would perform at children's birthday parties. Um, I would usually only accept the children that were under five because they were just easier to trick. Um, and, um, and kids, I know that some of you like, like magic too. And so the whole, the whole key, this is a, a, a button. So, you know, the whole key in magic, what makes magic magic is the capacity of the magician to misdirect the eyes of the audience. So what you do if you want to make something like this disappear is you grab it and you want to focus on the left hand because there's nothing there. And the illusion 
of the magician is to distract the audience with what is inconsequential in order to hide what is actually real. <laughs> I won't charge you extra for that one. <laughs> this is essentially what God is saying is wrong with us as human beings. He's saying, Samuel, you're duped. You've been pickpocketed. You're hoodwinked, right? You see, you see height and power and good looks and an impressive resume and all that stuff, inconsequential distractions. You're seeing the wrong thing. What I see is what matters most. The heart, God says, what is within the, the character of a person's soul. You see what's outside, I see the inside. You see what's inconsequential, I see what really matters. Now, y'all, let's just pause for a minute here, okay? Samuel, if Samuel was an ancient man who lived thousands of years ago, and if he was tempted to be overly occupied on the outward appearance of people rather than what really matters, do you realize just how in trouble we are? Do y'all realize that? I mean, there has never been a people in the history of the world that is more obsessed and more focused on external appearances than we are. And never in any history, in any culture, in any time and place. It is, it is uh, we are so bombarded with images of what you should be and what you should look like and what other people should be and what other people should look like that, that it is, it's impossible. And I really do mean it's impossible not to be affected by that and to be continuously making comparisons of yourself with others. And it is corrosive, y'all, and it's destructive. And some of you have been victims of this. It is damaging to women. It is damaging to girls. It is damaging to boys. It is damaging to men. Whether it's the simplest ad on TV or the ubiquitous presence of pornography everywhere, we are being continuously discipled, habitually formed to see the world in exact opposite way as God sees it. We're being discipled to see the world in exactly opposite the way as God sees it. It affects who we choose to date, who we choose to marry, who we want to be friends with, who we take seriously, who we want to be our neighbors, what kind of neighborhoods we want to live in, who we want to hire, how we judge someone to be worthwhile, what jobs to take, what restaurants to frequent, what churches to attend. And when we do that, God says, when we are overly occupied with these external things, we are being hoodwinked, duped. We've missed reality. The, the, the great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard told a parable about some thieves who broke into a jewelry store late at night, and instead of stealing anything, they took the price tags of the most expensive things, and they put it on the cheapest things, and they took the price tags of the cheapest things, and they put it on the most expensive things, and they left everything there. Not the best act of thievery, but a great practical joke. And Kierkegaard's point that he's making is this, is that something like this has happened to our world, that our world's values have gone completely whack. Our perception is skewed, and so now we tend to value what is cheap, and we overlook what is valuable. We see what is foolish to be wise, and we look at wise to be foolish. We see what is ugly to be beautiful, and what is beautiful to be ugly. And part of what it means, listen to me on this, y'all, who, you, who, those of you who, who see yourself as a Christian, who see yourselves as a follower of Jesus, part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to recognize that you are every day being habitually discipled to see the world in the exact opposite way as God sees it and come under the tutelage of Jesus that you might learn to see how God sees. This is why it's so important to study 
the words and the teachings of Jesus. Like we sang earlier when we sang the Beatitudes, Jesus says, yeah, in your eyes, the blessed people of the world are the rich and the famous and the powerful and the beautiful and the successful. But in my kingdom, here's who's blessed, the poor, the suffering, the persecuted, the weak, the meek, the lowly. He's giving us new glasses. He's inviting us to see as God sees. And so that's the invitation is, will you come under the, the lordship and the tutelage of Jesus that you might be reshaped to see how God sees? It may mean limiting your media intake or your shopping habits so that you can be more focused on cultivating the fruit of the spirit rather than cultivating a perfect appearance. And maybe it means as a parent, you know, there's a lot of parents here. I'm a parent too. And it was really hard as a parent, but maybe as parents, it means we need to always be asking ourselves, how are we forming our children to become adults of love and mercy and justice and wisdom rather than trying to get our kids into the best colleges? Or, or, or maybe it means doing a friendship audit in your life. Look at the last 10 people you called on your phone. Do you spend most of your time exclusively with who the world sees as most valuable, most beautiful, and most successful? Or do you give any time in any part of your life to those that God says are most valuable to him, the poor, the immigrant, the refugee, the marginalized, the orphan, the outsider, the widow? Jesus is inviting you to see as he sees, to see as God sees. So we've seen two things. We've seen that we see endings, God sees beginnings. We've seen that we see outside, God sees inside. And one last thing, we see smallness. God sees greatness. So Jesse has eight sons, eight sons, right? And he parades seven of them in front of Samuel. Now, seven, seven. If any of you guys were here in the Revelation series, you know that seven is a very important biblical number. It's a number that symbolizes wholeness and completion. So when Samuel heard that Jesse had seven sons, his, his ears perked up. He thought, oh man, I got some good ones here. There's got to be a good, a good son here in this seven. This is this number of wholeness, right? And so they began to pass by. One by one, presumably from the oldest, the tallest, the most impressive, down to the shortest and the youngest and the least impressive. And each time God says, nope, 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 nope. And you can imagine Samuel was getting kind of nervous. Right? Do you remember in kickball in PE as a kid? And, and the two captains start picking. They take turns. Who's on their team? And you start with the fastest. You start with the strongest. You start with, you know, the, the most athletic and one by one by one by one until at the very end, you're left with kids like me, you know, the cello players, you know, <laughs> left, left at the end, the dregs, the kids that nobody wants. And so I think Samuel was feeling that way a little bit. And so he finally gets to the line in the end of the line and he's like, well, nobody's left. And he says, man, um, you, you don't happen to have any other sons, do you? And he's like, well, he kind of rolls his eyes. He's like, I mean, I sort of, but he's the youngest and he's on the fields of the sheep. And, if, and, and he actually says the word he uses for youngest is the Hebrew word hakatan, which was a negative pejorative term for weakest, small. It's like the Hebrew word for runt. And so he basically says, you know, I've got one, but he's the runt of the litter and you really, this is not kingly material. I mean, we didn't even invite him to the ceremony. This is definitely not the king that, that, that you want. Samuel's like, bring him. We'll wait. So they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait. Who knows how long they wait? I mean, they got to go way out in the field and find this kid. 
And so in comes this kid, little scrappy runt, small, sweaty, covered in sheep poop. And God says, he's the one, anoint him now. And there in front of all his brothers, the little nunt, his anointed king. Y'all, this is, this is an amazing story. Uh, Robert Alter, who's one of the great, really the greatest living Hebrew scholar, says this. He says, this is, this, is, this is, instead of the older brother, or even the youngest of the seven sons, which would have been kind of crazy in itself, an eighth son, who's not even part of what the wholeness represents, is chosen, who's not even present for the ceremony. This whole story is playing out the theme of the reversal of primogenitor that dominates the Bible. Now, let me translate that. Primogenitor was the ancient Hebrew principle, the ancient practice of the ancient world that gave everything, all the power, all the money to the oldest son. And on the flip side, it gave everything to the most beautiful woman, right? And so over and over again, what we see God doing instead is reversing the values of the world. So he's always choosing the younger son. He's choosing Abel, not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. Or he goes with the unwanted woman, the unsightly woman, the old woman, the barren woman. So it's Sarah, not Hagar. It's Leah, not Rachel. Uh, It's Hannah, it's Tamar, it's Ruth. God always chooses the girl that nobody wants and the boy that everybody forgets. And so here, God chooses for the most important king and the most important leader of all of Israel, literally the boy who was forgotten. <laughs> the marginalized, the outsider, the forgotten, the small. And you know, when he comes in, you, you gotta love the editor of this text because he loves like throwing in these little commentaries. In verse 12, it says, he was ruddy with fine appearance and handsome features. So you might be thinking, well, he might be a runt, but at least he's good looking. But I love what Old Testament scholar Walter Brugman says about this, about why his appearance is noted. He says this, the young David is one of the marginal people he is uncredentialed and has no social claim to make. Those who love this story are the most, the most are those who, like David, were marginal with no credentials and no social claims. Listen to this. For such people, it would be important to celebrate that among the marginal, there are beautiful people. That among the little ones, there is potential for greatness. God is inviting us to see as he sees. He, he's, we look for greatness on the top, God looks on the bottom. We tend to look for insiders, God looks for outsiders. We look for the first, God looks for the last. We look high, God looks low. And so his kingdom, the small is great, the runt becomes king. Now there's a bittersweetness here because we know how even David's story ends, that this little king is caught up with the same cycles of power and wealth and fame and self-centeredness that all the other kings are prone to, that he too gets duped, he fails to see what God sees. And so above all, we believe this story points to another king. This story prophesies of another runt, another nobody, another one who's born in the town of Bethlehem, a town that nobody has ever heard of. He too was put on the outside with the, the sheep and the livestock and not brought in. He too lived much of his life in anonymity. He too was a shepherd of his sheep. He too was a magnet for the marginalized, the primps, the pimps, and the prostitutes, and the tax collector saw him as lovely. He too was forgotten by his father, forsaken on the cross. He had no attractiveness by which we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. 
So this whole story points to the gospel, the person of Jesus, the true king, the one who is the prince, the beautiful, glorious prince of heaven who became small, who became ugly, who became lost, who became damned so that his little ones might be brought in, so that the small ones might be lifted up, so that the meek and the lowly of the world might be loved and forgiven and included part of his community. And so you wanna know how you can really begin to see how God sees friends? How can you see beginnings instead of endings? How can you see the inside more than the outside? How can you value what God values and love what God loves? Get to know the king, receive the king, Surrender to the king, submit to the king, follow the king, learn from the king, come under the tutelage of the king, study the king, give your life to the king, be formed by the king. The king himself has reversed the values of the world so that in him, the small is great, the lost is found, the low is lifted high. And to the degree that you receive and are shaped by this king, to that degree, will you see as God sees. In C.S. Lewis' book, uh, The Great Divorce, he tells a story about a busload of people who go on a tour of heaven. And the author who is telling the story from the first person has a guide along the way. And at one point, he looks up and he sees this beautiful, gorgeous woman. And she has boys and girls and men and women dancing around her, singing her praises. Her beauty is unbearable. And the author looks at her and he says, who is that? And the guide says, well, somebody you've never heard of. And he says, well, I just assumed she was someone very famous. And he says, oh, no, no. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith. And she lived in a tiny little town north of London called Golders Green. But... She seems to be a person of great importance. Oh, yes, says the guide. She is one of the great ones. But haven't you heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two very different things? Haven't you heard? Haven't you heard, family, that fame in this country and fame on earth are two very different things? So you could go for it. You could try to be the most beautiful. You could try to have the best body. You could try to have an ageless face. You could go for the money. You could go for the power. You, could, you can go for the glory, and some of you might get it. But don't you see? It's ephemeral. It's impermanent. It's temporary. It's an illusion. It's nothing. It's not real, and it's not you. Don't be the supermodel. Be Sarah Smith of Golders Green. Because if you can be her, you can be that forever, forever. Haven't you heard that fame on earth and fame in the kingdom are two very different things? Don't you wanna see how God sees? I do. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we don't see as you see. We confess that even this morning we have valued the wrong things, loved the wrong things, been attracted to the wrong things, been drawn to the wrong things. We confess that we don't have eyes 
to see what is valuable in the kingdom. So we turn again to you. We, we come under the lordship of Jesus. We desire to be his kingdom people, to see as he sees what value he values. If there are those who are feeling hopeless today, may they see a new beginning that you want to bring in this ending. If there are those who are feeling insecure and beaten down because of something external to their bodies or their lives, may they see the beauty that you affirm them with, telling them they are valuable and loved. If there is someone here who is feeling very small, very insignificant, feeling like a Sarah Smith of Golders Green, may they see that you look on them at love and pronounce them great in the kingdom. Give us eyes to see, oh God. Give us eyes to see. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.